er stråðin í rassinn. Oh, hi. I didn't quite see you there. You must be wondering why I'm writing lewd graffiti on this New York subway train. Well, you see, according to the broken windows theory of criminology, visible signs of crime and antisocial behavior such as graffiti, broken windows, human waste in offbeat places, and so on, in themselves create an urban environment that stokes the flame of further crime and vandalism potentially resulting in all of society getting dragged into the mire with it in a sort of loop-de-loop -loop of public drinking, fornication, fear evasion, cattle raids, bridge trollism, tribal warfare, you name it. Which is fantastic. Just listen here. If this theory holds, more runes in public spaces ought to make people more curious about the runic alphabet which will inevitably spiral into rampant runic literacy among the inner-city youth. I call this the Scandifuturist Broken Windows Fairy of Runacy. Okay, listen to this. It's always important to knock before you enter. The contents of my inscriptions matter not, nor does my specific choice of alphabet, whether elder or younger futhark, short twig or long branch, cipher runes or the Anglo-Saxon futhark even. Hell, sometimes I make up my own runish symbols, or add a snaz of Etruscan flair. Half my inscriptions are just gibberish anyway, like the nonsense inscriptions of old. No doubt some scholar from the distant future will compile my vast corpus of New York subway inscriptions and spin creative suggestions about my intent and purpose. And if they say these meaningless, asemic scribblings are magical inscriptions, I would find it quite flattering, insofar it is my purpose to play the Pied Piper that leads the youth astray to the tooting of my runic flute. Hail, Oxal. Welcome to yet another episode of the Brute Norse Podcast, where we indulge in walking backwards into the future. I think it's safe to say that, perhaps, prehistoric and pre-modern religiosity has become somewhat of a pet theme throughout Brute Norse, the podcast or elsewhere. Hell, even modern neo-pagan ideas are frequently referenced, even entertained. How could I not, after all? Isn't the whole point of Brute Norse to not only indulge in walking backwards into the future, but also tracing the meandering path of eldritch Scandinavian heritages through deep and dark valleys, some of which are yet to be explored, all the way up to our own age and from our own age to the stars? Whenever we talk about these ancient or medieval societies tackled on this podcast, beliefs and superstitions never seem far away. The same applies to the simulation of a world that is still at our fingertips to grasp if we want it. When I chant my Scandifuturist incantations into the hypersigil of this very podcast. For what is Scandifuturism if not an obituary to disenchantment? Good riddance. 
but in this witch's brew of metaphysical speculation and source critique. Maybe I've been too promiscuous with this term, religion, all along. As if she were a gothic slave girl and I were a Roman consul, helping myself to her fruits with dirty, pawing fingers as if she were an apple tree. It makes me sick how loosely I've thrown around this term, religion, thinking I was elevating these cultural expressions to, a, to, to something higher. But thankfully, there have been voices to guide me through the fjord of knowledge, saving me from being mangled against the jagged rocks of imprecise terminology. The million kroner question is, how can we talk about religion in a society where an indigenous understanding of religion as a distinct cultural expression does not really exist? That is exactly the sort of society we're talking about when we're talking about the so-called Vikings. Today's episode will be a little different from the usual fare, as I've invited my friend Adrian Johansson Rinde for a nice fireside chat about the term religion. As it turned out, we had a lot of other things to talk about as well, and hence we may have struggled to stay on topic a little bit. Adrian is a PhD student in religious didactics at the University of Stavanger, but much like Theodor Kaczynski, this scholar is mostly known for other projects. When Adrian is not busy pruning the tree of life, he is one half of the occult black metal duo Dutz Engel. As always, my name is Erik Sturgesen, and this is the Brute Norse Podcast. Adrian Johansen Rinde. Uh, God knows what I'm doing here on this podcast, Eirik. Want to chip in? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, uh, Adrian is an old friend of mine, uh, though we seldomly seem to be in the same room, uh, the both of us. But yeah, we've known each other for quite a few years, and I've uh, always appreciated Adrian's uh, sharp wit and uh, comprehensive knowledge uh, on uh, the theory of uh, religion and uh, religious science. Uh, so I think what maybe prompted me to invite him here on the podcast was that, uh, as many listeners will recall, there was a debate a while back between me and Dr. Matthias Norvik from the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, based in part on our on our mutual YouTube channels and his... Uh, uh, Nordic mythology channel. The topic of that debate was uh, my claim that uh, Norse mythology, or Norse pre-Christian religion rather, uh, was not nature worship. And uh, he kind of spun it over to uh, 
towards the wider topic on nature religion and nature religiosity uh, and that sort of thing, I think. And I believe that you, uh, Adrian, had some very good uh, points that you were chipping in while this was going on. There were a lot of people who had a bunch of opinions about that topic, but I think that you had some of the most informed opinions on the matter, to my recollection. And I think that you might have been uh, ripping your hair out in frustration from the sideline about some of our use, a reckless use of the term religion in the first place, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, I recall the discussion, but uh, the thing is, uh, religious studies have been arguing about what really is religion for well over a century, and uh, spoiler alert, but none of us really agree yet, to be honest. So in my PhD, I'm looking at uh, uh, what people put into the term religion in some sense. So I got 318-year-olds in Norway to uh, make a new religion just to see what they brought with them into it. So I had to look some at, uh, you know, the historical context of the term religion, of course. And uh, well, it's a mixed bag and it's very context specific. It's a very modern, very Western kind of term. So one of the problems is that, uh, well, it's based on Christianity, to be honest. If you're looking at anything else, then it's always based on Christianity as a prototype. And if we're thinking of religion in those terms, then we're bringing with us a, a lot of uh, connotations that might not really fit as well to the context and the, set and the setting that we're bringing things into. Uh, a good example of this is the case of Japan, of course, which is very specific. Yeah, ho hold on just a second. You, you said that you got 300 teenagers to create their own religion. What do you, what do you mean by that? Oh, yeah, sure. That's, uh, that's my PhD, actually. I uh, got 318-year-olds to make a, like an individual written assignment of sorts with just create and describe a new religion. And uh, so I'm sitting here trying to analyze them and turn this into you know, proper academic articles. But I'm drowning in material. It's really interesting. <laughs> so what are some of the common themes in these uh, made-up religions that these 18-year-olds are cooking up? Yeah, um, don't I don't I haven't really written it into article form yet, so don't really quote me on this. But uh, just based on a non-rigorous analysis and uh, my own views on the subject, I think that a lot of them are very focused on a, a kind of ethics in the sense that not how to live the perfect human life or not how to be a perfect human being, but how you should behave when encountering other human beings. That's kind of what they're most interested in and uh, what a lot of their religions are focused on. And if it includes a god or not, that doesn't seem as uh, important to them. Okay, but you were saying that uh, Christianity is the prototype uh, for uh, how many of these kids and I, I suppose uh, Western people generally think about religion. And and you see this also in your in your research? Yeah, I think so. It's often very based on if you think about religion, what are you really thinking about? It's often based on some kind of personal belief, of course, and a kind of like a, a ideology, cosmology, and ethics and rules for behavior. And I think a lot of those things, if you really think about it, are well, Protestant Christian traits, aren't they? especially the focus on personal belief. So 
there's something here that uh, is very specific to this context. And of course, for the formation of nation states, then it became really important to know, uh, are you on the census or not? Are you a part of this ism or not? Are you a part of this institution or not? And that led to the formation of categories such as Hinduism in India, for instance, because people need to be put into boxes. And that's something that's really important for modern states, but might not have been as important in other times and other places. Yeah, and in preparation for this episode, you sent me some of uh, the articles and, um, and some manuscripts that you've written. And I was really fascinated by a few of the uh, examples that you use in, in these. And perhaps the most tantalizing one of all is a, is a subject that is familiar to the podcast because I seem to be returning to Japan as this kind of exotic, uh, you know, I, I dread to say it, but I keep returning to Japan as an example of a, of a culture where things are done very differently, but we can still, you know, use it uh, as a body of comparative material, perhaps. Uh. I'm an armchair orientalist myself, so I'm not judging you at all. It's a really fascinating case, and I have no experience with the Japanese language at all. So, you know, take this with a, a few grains of salt. But um, the thing that makes Japan such an interesting case when talking about religion is because well, in 1853, when it was opened up by the Perry uh, expedition and so on, then uh, very roughly speaking, very... Uh, they had to sign a lot of treaties, and some of those treaties included, you know, you should have freedom of religion. And uh, one of the big problems is that uh, the Japanese didn't really have a good term for religion at that time. So local scholars made uh, journals, for instance, discussing the matter. Okay, how are we supposed to translate the term religion? What does it mean in the Japanese context? So. There were over 12 different translations that were proposed, which had really different connotations, of course, uh, which is you know, fascinating and shows us that religion as a term really isn't a human universal, as uh, it has been often conceptualized as, you know, that people were kind of expecting that, okay, if I have a time machine and I'm going to visit some Neanderthals, then I could expect to see okay, some kind of way of structuring their society and some way of gathering resources and some kind of religion that people were thinking like this. Uh, but with Japan as a case and some other cases, of course, it's really hard to think in those terms nowadays. But um, an interesting thing here is that uh, one of the ways that uh, religion was conceptualized in the end then, because uh, of course it uh, ended up being debated for quite some time before it was introduced into law, specifically the constitution from 1889, uh, where Confucianism, for instance, was not considered a religion, more of a scholastic subject, which is kind of how, it reminds me of how we're talking about philosophy often, you know, that we're talking about Plato as if he has nothing to do with religion, even though he wrote, you know, in the Timaeus, he wrote the creation myth using the uh, the Demiurge, for instance, Demiurgos, which was used later in you know, the, the Gnostic traditions. And he is always writing about ecstasy and the daimonion of uh, Socrates and so on. Lots of lots of interesting terms like reincarnation and so on. But we're thinking of Plato as philosophy 
and we don't really have a term for the kind of religion that he had. Similar with Japan and Confucianism. And what we often call Shinto was uh, split into different parts. One part was considered national culture. So it wasn't religion, it was just, you know, Japanese culture. So everybody could participate without having their uh, religious, their, their rights to religious freedom infringed upon. But other parts, again, different Shinto sects, for instance, they were considered re religions that you could join voluntarily. And uh, other parts, again, that we, from the outside, perhaps, would consider different Shinto sects, they were considered not religion, but dangerous superstitions, who then were undeserving of the protection that you could get from religious freedom. But again, superstitions that had to be rooted out by the state. It's uh, really interesting how they were looking at different uh, conceptualizations of religion and what kind of effect that had, of course. Extremely fascinating. Um, it makes me think about like yeah, how how different this can be from one culture to the next. For instance, in Hinduism, there is no, there's no real separation between Hindu philosophy and Hindu religiosity necessarily. Yeah, it's fascinating how the Japanese did not have a term for religion. They had to cook up a term based on uh, descriptions or terms that they had describing uh, different schools of thought within Buddhism. Absolutely. And of course, uh, one of the things that uh, so in the debate with uh, Dr. Matthias Norvik, uh, the whole point of contention was, can we call Norse religion a, a nature religion or a nature worship and that sort of thing? The big question perhaps is, can we call Norse religion religion at all? I think it's a good question. And um, I'm a guarded, uh, yeah, but kind of beware about it because you, you will bring with you a lot of interesting connotations that are connected to, again, the context in which the term religion was created and how it was loaded with different uh, ideas that you're bringing with you. And you're taking that with you in the time machine when you're going back and looking at the different context. So you have to be wary about that. You have to be wary about, okay, what do I mean when I use the term religion? Of course you can use it. And we have to use words that don't fit the context uh, because we don't really have the words as they were used in that context. We can't just unlearn our language and go in there and you know put on us our you know, Norse shapeshifter outfits and suddenly think like Norse people did, you know, uh, unfortunately, perhaps. But uh, let me know if you find some drugs to that effect. I'd be very interested in trying them. But, um... <laughs> I think that that's a, that's a subject for a different podcast. Uh... <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Old Norse psychonautics. Uh, I think there's a term in religious studies called uh, emic and uh, what's the other? Yeah, you mean like an inside perspective and an outside perspective? Ethic and emic, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, ethic and emic. Mm. Um, what is interesting here, the elephant in the room, perhaps, is that uh, Norse culture originally did not have a term meaning religion either. They had a concept uh, of uh, Sidr, which means custom. That's kind of the, the Norseman uh, having, you know, the knife on the throat forced to define what the old religion is as opposed to the new religion, which of course is, uh, is true, it's belief. 
a concept that was not very essential or was not important at all to, <clears throat> to people in, say, the Viking Age, presumably. That's a very interesting point. I have, uh, there's two things that we can add to that in the sense that, uh, okay, uh, number one, uh, custom. And uh, in these days, people are often saying, oh, no, that's culture, not religion. And they're trying to defend their own religion, for instance. And this shows us how that kind of uh, trying to separate the world between what's religion and what's culture is, uh, in my mind, ultimately meaningless. Uh, religion is always culture. Not all culture is religion, but the, the lines aren't entirely clear to me. And it's always a way of some people will say that, no, this is part of the religion and this is just culture. And some other people will draw the line differently, of course. It's a way of often religious people to argue about what's important in their religion. That's what they're really doing when they're doing this. But this shows us how meaningless that can be when you're seeing culture, custom, you know, uh, versus belief in the Norse context versus these debates that are going on nowadays, which are trying to separate the two. But that was the first thing that sprung to my mind. But also, I think uh, it's kind of interesting that we have, uh, even from antiquity, uh, you, you know how we have the term religion from Latin, like terms like religio and religiare were used by Cicero, amongst others. And then they were looking at Roman customs often. You know, it was uh, connected with you know, performing sacrifices, worship, rites, things that were connected to customs and often were very public. It was part of a huge social thing. It wasn't necessarily connected with personal belief in any way. That was besides the point in some sense. But then you have people like uh, Augustine in his City of God. He's bemoaning how uh, religion doesn't really fit. And he doesn't like the word religion because uh, people were using it for all of these social things that he didn't like. But he wanted it, uh, to talk about you know, the personal belief and the personal relationship between uh, an individual and, uh, and the deity. Uh, so he thought that religion wasn't really a good word because it could include all of these other practices, all of these big social customs that he didn't really approve of. <laughs> That's an interesting. Yeah, so Augustine, Augustine was really the odd man out originally, I suppose. But now that perspective is the paradigm for how we see religion very often. And yet we have with, uh, with what we call Norse religion, Norse religion so-called, is full of examples of the kind that we see in the, you know, in, in the context of Japan, as we were talking about. We have mandatory social customs that everybody has to participate in, possibly, you know, and things that are considered to be political, public things. Like every time there was a market or a legal assembly, there was probably also cult and sacrifices there that people had to attend. A belief is totally irrelevant to these sorts of things. And there are probably all sorts of, you know, rites and rituals and ceremonies throughout the person's life. Uh, things that we would have considered secular, possibly even, that in that society is, is not natural to separate from what we might call religion, actually. But then there are other aspects which we, which we throw into the lump of Norse religion as well. Belief in witchcraft, uh, superstitions, things that people in the Middle Ages or the Viking Age would never have accepted as things that are necessarily good or should exist or should be practiced by anybody. 
but are kind of floating out there in their worldview. It's a good point, I think, that it's not just uh, the prescribed practices of a culture, but it's also all of these superstitions and weird rituals and weird soothsayers and so on. We all use the term religion for those too. Um, that those might be misleading as well. I think that's a good point. Yeah, one thing that I was quite surprised about when I came to America is the sheer abundance of fortune tellers in any town you go to. Every town, especially here in Manhattan, there's a, an extreme abundance of, of card readers and, uh, and palm readers and that sort of thing uh, all over the place. But I don't think that Americans would agree that this is representative of American religiosity per se. They would maybe see it as something separate or a separate phenomenon that exists within American culture, but not religion in the same way that Catholics are religious, for, for instance. Hmm. We often have terminology for this in the sense of popular religion or folk religion or even civic religion, like what happens on the 4th of July and telling these stories about the founding fathers and so on. It's kind of, let's call it religion adjacent. Is that a good and diplomatic way of talking about it? And it's not necessarily just Americans too. You know, you know the ritual consumption of sausages on the 17th of May in Norway is quite interesting as well, connected with all of these nationalized heritage kind of costumes that people are putting on, but really have their origins somewhere else, of course, like everything else has, but it's uh, religion adjacent, I'd, I'd say. I've had that discussion with my wife, actually, who is a big folk costume nerd, and she has a lot of issues with the Norwegian Bunad tradition specifically because uh, she says that it's not what it pretends to be. And uh, I tell her that that's no... That, it's based on her misunderstanding of what the bunad is supposed to be or what it means to the to the Norwegians. I guess on some level there is this mythical origin of the bunad, that it is the peasant costume of our ancestors. But I think that just like with many kind of religious narratives, I think many people, if they were pressed, they would kind of say, yeah, well, there are some nuances. And if, they have to, if they're forced to admit it, they will say that, yeah, maybe it, it didn't look exactly like this in, say, 1700. Or maybe it wasn't codified like this. Uh, but the function of the bunad is more like a, like a ceremonial garment, right? It's more like a ritual thing. We're ready to accept this when we see this in many other cultures. Probably the, the kimono. I'm sure that there's many, many rules that apply to, to how a kimono is supposed to be tied and worn and things like that. But, uh, but the claim that the kimono itself has been unchanged throughout the centuries and is worn today exactly as it would have been uh, 500 years ago is probably not true, you know, I, and I'm not an expert in this, but to claim that that has to be the case is a misunderstanding of what the ceremonial and kind of mythic uh, performative uh, enacting function of these garments, right? I agree with you. And I also think it's inherently suspect to try to find authenticity in culture as if it has an origin that's, you know, can be situated to this specific time and place and it's completely in a vacuum it, it isn't copying anything else and it's following these specific rules that always have been unchanged and never have been interpreted in various ways that seems to misunderstand what humans are and what culture is 
to me at least. But I am a heathen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We see this term also, I guess, with uh, uh, when people, we see this in kind of like these, uh, these memes all the time and is often associated with the alt-right, but it's uh, taken on a much more like wider, ironic uh, presence in, in online culture, you know, the, uh, the slogan, uh, return to tradition, you know, reject modernity and that sort of thing. But what tradition are they actually talking about? Uh, it all, often seems like they're talking about kind of a, a tradition of the gaps. Uh, we talk to certain perennialists, for instance, or so-called traditionalists. They're often saying that, well, you know, when there's when they say tradition, they're not talking about the celebration of Christmas or or eating a certain cake at a certain date or uh, or whatever. They're talking about the the big capital T tradition. But where is this tradition? You know, it's uh, it implies that tradition is not around anymore. That we have abandoned the the big tradition. But the fact of the matter is that uh, that there's very little about uh, human behavior that is not traditional in some way at all. Even the way we dress, the way we eat, our language. Agreed. It's culture is always derivative, and I think that's uh, kind of the interesting bit about language too. That even if you live in a new context, you have to use terminology from the old context to think about new things. You know? So we have, we're always using fossils when we're thinking about the future and so on. We're always connected in this continuum in some sense. But I, I share some of your suspicions about uh, big T traditionalists, even though I had a lot of interesting influences when I've been reading some of the literature, of course. It's been, uh, it's been a hoot. But uh, it seems uh, inherently suspicious that uh, tradition is a... Uh, modern conception of course uh, i kind of like the irony in that i think some of the right the better writers in that well tradition would also appreciate that irony yeah probably because uh the best writers in that tradition have wit you know uh not all of its followers <laughs> uh, one of the most interesting uh uses of the term tradition i think was when i was studying archaeology the lecturer was uh purposefully uh connecting the term tradition to also technological development and things like that. And I thought that that was a very interesting, a very interesting connection to make that has probably influenced my entire perspective on uh, not only on tradition, but also how, uh, what I do with Brute Norse, you know, when we talk about Scandi futurism and th that sort of those fringe uh, side projects that I have <laughs> on the side with my work. Oh, apropos, just uh, a quick aside before we go on. But, uh... Uh, I know that your love for uh, uh, when the robbers came to Cardamom Town, that old Burvjörn Egner children's classic. Well, I... Yeah, that is true. I have a very profound love for that book. And for those who don't know, uh, that is a Norwegian children's book, technically a play, I suppose, uh, about a bunch of uh, bandits living in the margins of society and are slowly... Uh, through a bunch of, you know, meetings uh, with the villagers uh, integrated into the, into the town. Uh, it has a, in this town they all abide by a specific law called uh, the cardamom, the cardamom law, which is that you shall not uh, pester others, you're supposed to be nice and kind, and beyond that you can do what thou wilt. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, and it's so un-Norwegian, so it's kind of weird that it has this kind of legendary cultural uh, 
you know, status that it has in the Norwegian context because we're incredibly conformist. Yeah. <laughs> so this whole do what thou wilt thing seems very foreign. It's a, it's an extremely refreshing book and it's so full of uh, of imagery. It's almost like this shamanistic journey. I read your Kabbalistic analysis and I, I had a great time doing so. so. <laughs> you know, the best but, the uh, best part about... My point being... Oh, sorry, yeah. You first. No, uh, the best part about that Kabbalistic analysis that I made, uh, well, for those who are not in the know, I, I wrote an, an in-depth occult analysis of this book for a Norwegian magazine a few years back. And uh, the best part about it is that when I brought this up to, you know, practicing uh, magicians, esotericists, and things like that, they were interested and intrigued, but they started, you know, arguing with my with my hypothesis and thereby extrapolating and elaborating and making the mystery even deeper, finding new parallels that I hadn't thought about before. So a good example of, a, of contemporary uh, occult spitballing, I might say. Uh, esoteric interpretational practices have a tendency to just create genres of literature, really. And people start talking about stuff like this. But uh, uh, just to draw it back to, in my research, when I made all of these teenagers make new religions uh, for my own amusement and financial gain, I um, uh, actually found that a lot of them used the law of cardamom. Like, uh, some of them used the Ten Commandments, some of them used the Golden Rule and so on, because they apparently they think that religions are about rules for behavior which is an interesting finding in itself, if you ask me. But I was also kind of fascinated that so many of them had used this, what is it, uh, children's book from the 60s. And then 2020, 18-year-olds uh, are using it when I'm just saying, okay, make a new religion, and bam, they're picking this one up and throwing it at me. And I'm kind of fascinated by that. Like, what parts of popular culture have made that kind of impact and are so religion adjacent that you're immediately thinking of this. And why are you thinking of this and not something else? Which is something I'd like to do, uh, to look a bit closer into, which has brought me into the strange position that I really never expected to find myself in and having to explain the law of cardamom to an international academic audience as part of my job. Um, <laughs> I I didn't think that was where things were going when I started studying religion in the university. <laughs> I thought you'd uh, enjoy that. I think that that is very interesting. And of course, the reason why uh, I wrote that um, that analysis and probably because you know it you pick up on it and things like that is because we have both studied religious uh, studies, and so we're kind of in tune. Uh, also because we're very interested in esoteric literature. So we're in tune with kind of the, the notion that there is something, some deeper meaning behind, you know, surface level banal texts. But the book itself is not overly religious in any way at all. But it has a structure of almost like a, like a, like a mythic legend or something in some aspects, but it's, but it's very, very subtle. I think you can find that in a lot of children's tales, though. A lot of these, um, well, okay, let's have a look at The Lion King, for instance. Like, you know, Simba is Horus, <laughs> who has to avenge his father, Osiris, who is killed by his uncle, Set. And when he retakes his place on the on uh, the peak of creation, and immediately the sun is back, and order, the cosmic balance of Mat, is restored, and so on, and uh, the land is flourishing. 
Uh, it seems like a horror <laughs> myth to me. Pretty simple. <laughs> even even uh, even he's even initiated by the baboon who's connected to Thoth or Tahuti, the god of magic. <laughs> there is a lot of interesting symbolism there. <laughs> I I wouldn't read too much into it, so you know, calm down. But it's still an interesting. Well, story. yeah, it reminds me of Alistair Crowley uh, dissecting uh, nursery rhymes as well, like Hickory Dickory Dock. The mouse went up the clock, and it's like the spirits transcending. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> very sexual, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, but that that is very fascinating, and of course, very far removed from uh, from the subject of of Norse religion. I have of course, a, but one thing that we could go back to and discuss a bit, though, is uh, when people are thinking of religion, they're often thinking of membership. Like I was saying that uh, uh, making religions and isms and so on that you can belong to become really important when you have nation states who want to have a census and want to know. Well, you know, are you? What are you doing? Are you a farmer? Are you paying your taxes? Uh, what kind of organizations are you in? What are you doing? They want to know what kind of a population they have, and uh, so it's not really that interesting to people if you go further back. And then it becomes kind of strange to talk about. Uh, okay, what religion do you belong to as an individual? You know, you were talking about the Japanese context earlier. Uh, you can go to one celebration that's often connected to Buddhism and you can go to another celebration that's often connected to Shintoism. But what do you belong to if you do both of those things? You know? So if you go back to a Norse person and they're doing all of these practices, would they belong to a religion? It's a good question. Uh, from the perspective of the, of the Norse person, probably not. Um, but uh, then you have also the question of uh, like when it's when Christianity is introduced, you know, when it's at the door, you know, knocking very hard. And uh, I think that there was a point where people in Scandinavia realized that uh, that there is a transition from one worldview or one cult to another, in a sense. Uh, the times are changing. Uh, and that's maybe you know one one kind of an awareness of that, of such a kind of I don't know market of ideas. I don't know if that's the proper way to say it. But of course, of course, the, there's a syncretism to consider as well. What about when people have elements of Christianity that they practice but are nominally pagan or whatever? Absolutely, and I can see some of these things in modern times as well. I think it's been undercommunicated. People are. I've been learning what we call um, the world religions paradigm for quite a while now, where there are, there are these um, big world isms in some sense, that are often five of them, you know, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism. And then there's this big bucket we just call the rest. And, you know, we leave it at that. But a big problem with this is that religions aren't just these five big categories. And in these categories, you find so much difference. Uh, like um, a friend of mine is from uh, Vietnam, for instance. And back in her hometown, they have two temples. And these two temples are connected to what are considered um, different atypical versions of Buddhism. So one of the temples uh, is from, you know, founded in the 1920s. 
and attributes from Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, and so on, and have made it, and Marxism, and have made this into its own thing, which is with its own specific story and this creation myth used using both the Tao and the yin and the yang, but, but also God creating Adam and so on. And the other temple, and it's just these two temples, that's more of a, okay, Buddhism meets kind of farmer Marxism. Uh, and it has its own story, of course, but all of these are completely uh, strange <laughs> to someone who perhaps grew up in Japan where they have, uh, for instance, a form of Buddhism called Pure Land Buddhism. Whereas this uh, Bodhisattva who promised that anyone who recites his name will be reborn in the next incarnation in a kind of uh, heaven that he has made so that it will be easier for you in the next incarnation. So the whole point there is to recite that name as a prayer and then to trust in this promise that this Bodhisattva made. And how similar is this really to the Marxist revolutionary farmers of Vietnam? <laughs> you know, it's very different. And it's very different from westernized Zen, for instance. Like Zen Buddhism in its uh, Asian context is very different from Zen Buddhism as it has been introduced to the West. And there are good historical reasons for this. But... Uh, that whole focus on personal experience seem very different from, you know, pure land Buddhism, for instance. So how good are these categories, Buddhism, when everything under it is so different? To touch again upon the, the question of membership, in Norse religion, like there's this idea that you are this religion or you are that religion or you belong to it and you, you exist in these sorts of groups. And when Christianity comes, whoever is pagan goes into these sleeper cells that are secretly practicing paganism. They seem to be Christian on the outside, but really within the four walls of the house, they belong to this secret cult where they worship the old gods. It's probably not that clear cut at all in the historical transition into a complete, you know, conversion to Christianity on a societal wide scale. And there's a great example of this actually with the conversion of the Sami who were, you know, famously uh, Christianized in the in the 1700s for the most part. The Christianization of the Sami is very like a slow burning thing. First of all, I think it was Håkon Håkonsen or one of the other Norse uh, kings possibly who petitioned the Pope to uh, sponsor crusades against the Sami and other Fennoogric peoples in the in the Arctic. Uh, this did not happen and that probably postponed the Christianization of the Sami considerably. But in the meantime, the Sami did actually adopt Christianity to a certain degree. They, they, they started going to church uh, or were more or less forced to do so. And not a lot of things were actually known about Sami religion. There are some sources from the medieval era about uh, Sami indigenous beliefs, but let's say by the 1700s, before the main Christianization starts even, uh, I think that there is uh, there's a petition from I don't from some some sort of uh, central church power that the Sami need to be Christianized. The response from the archbishop in Nidaros was that the Sami are perfectly Christian already. They do not need to be Christianized. And so they start asking the Sami, you know, are you guys Christian? And they go like, yeah, sure. You know, we you know we believe in that that dude up above and. Uh, his son and whatever, you know, they go to church regularly. Everything seems 
perfectly fine. Until they start prying, you know, deeper into their uh, spiritual beliefs and their and the things that they do uh, when they're at home and start interrogating these people. And it turns out that the Sami, you know, uh, if you're using the no true Scottist sort of fallacy, are not actually much Christian at all. And in fact, they have a whole set of, of cult practices that they practice knowingly in parallel with, with, with Christianity, which includes also mediating between the different deities and having a concept of a, of a highest God, who is the God that they hear about in the church, and then going to their indigenous gods and asking for forgiveness for giving this guy so much attention and, and you know, appeasing them with uh, libations and, uh, and little pieces of tobacco and whatnot. But this is nothing new. This is old news. And I think that a lot of us have, uh, we, uh, we have learned too well in these categories. So we're so used to thinking of them as kind of uniform, you know. And if you're going back to, well, antiquity or you're going back to early Christianity, then you see a lot of difference a lot of different groups who we have different words for nowadays but they just saw themselves as christians they didn't see themselves as anything special they just thought that this is what christianity is this these are our practices and you have terminology from people who like philo of alexandria who married the mosaic jewish tradition with uh, with uh, his platonism for instance he used the terminology of god when he was talking about, uh, for instance, uh, angels or, uh, or uh, prophets or philosophers and so on. So that could easily have been interpreted as a form of polytheism. I think I'm not an expert on this at all, but uh, you know, there is a, a case for all of these intermediary beings. What's the difference between them uh, do they have another function than kind of demigods under the highest god? You know, that uh, you could always introduce more characters that have these uh, positions between human beings and the highest god and still have the same kind of worldview, still connect all of these bits and pieces. And I think that's very normal in the Mediterranean late antiquity. You see, uh, you're always introducing uh, through the normal form of syncretic kind of religiosity that you could find in the Mediterranean in those days, where you could connect the neighboring cities, guardian and deity, for instance, into your own kind of religion. And you have the worldviews and civic practices of uh, the Roman state, for instance, which introduced, you know, Mithra and Isis and so on. It wasn't just a single belief in a single god and a single mythology. No, it was flexible. It could always introduce new elements. And uh, I think we often forget that Christianity has kind of always been like that as well. It has always introduced new saints or new angels or new heavens and new texts and new traditions and so on. And people have been arguing, no, this is a heresy. No, this is tradition and so on. And a lot of the important thinkers from late antiquity are kind of both Parts of what they have written and what they have said has been more or less just shoved aside. And ah, we, we don't talk much about that, of course. Like, but other parts of it has been introduced into orthodoxy. So orthodoxy is more of a 
a modern thing, uh, interestingly enough. That's my impression at least, but this is not my uh, particular field of expertise at all. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, but I think that you're entirely correct, though, to say that this is absolutely nothing new. Uh, and I'm happy that you bring up the saints, for, in, for instance, and, and, and how the saints perform the function that uh, other kind of, you know, lesser or, or, or more diverse set of, of uh, deities or powers, as, as was a fashionable religious scientific term uh, a few years back, uh, that, that this has always just kind of been around. And you see that even in, uh, in Scandinavian folk religion where people see aspects of a so-called paganism, people love the term paganism when they see something that, that is not officially described in church canon or, or in, in, in priestly theology, uh, but where people have these sorts of demigods and these uh, things that they, that they respect in a cultic manner, maybe on the farm. It's an interesting that you introduce the term paganism into this because, uh, okay, it's kind of an aside, but it's also kind of related. So bear with me, okay? Uh, in the 15th, 16th, 1700s, that, that kind of era before we had the world religions paradigm, and um, things were looking a bit differently when people were talking about the religions of the world. So there's lots of interesting books and pamphlets written by Europeans in this. Uh, this time frame, uh, let's call it the early modern period, just so we have a term for it. But um, a lot of them were written as much for the entertainment value as as much as they wanted to provide truthful information about the world. So it was always uh, kind of a spectacle, you know, come here and look at all of the strange customs of the world. And uh, a lot of them introduced a kind a uh, four-part typology of religion, which was really common in that period, it was uh, Christianity, of course, and uh, Judaism, and what they called Mohammedism at those days, um, Islam, of course. And there's a fourth category, and that fourth category that it varied. It could be polytheism, it could be paganism, and often it was idolatry. And the whole point seems to be that, okay, you have Christianity, Judaism, Islam, which are kind of similar. It's all Abrahamic faiths, as you well know. And then you have the four category. Uh, let's call it other. <laughs> but the whole point being that these are the older ones. They seem can be really different and they can have pretty much no historical contact with each other at all. But they're still the same category. I mean, how does that function? That only works if you're using Abrahamic faiths as a prototype. You know, you're not being specifically scientific about this. It's, uh, it shows how contextual we've always been. You have the fourth category, which is just everything else, <laughs> which is fascinating. I have a lot of interesting book titles using this kind of four-part typology, and some of them are very creative. Some of them go further and say uh, religions such as uh, Christianity, um, uh, Muscovite religion, and diabolical religion, and Saracenical religion, and so on. So some of them are very different from <laughs> kind of typology. Diabolical religion. I know. That's, that's a, it's a fascinating yeah. term. <laughs> Unfortunately, most of the ones that you're interested in were considered either uh, idolatries, paganisms, or Norse religions. So 
the diabolical ones. Uh, let's save those for another day. But it's interesting, though. I, there, there definitely is a hang-up uh, in contemporary culture to, to describe anything that is kind of like any sort of folk religiosity as paganism in itself, which is one of the reasons why I've, I myself have been reluctant to embrace the term. I think that sometimes when, when people ask you, it's very easy to just say that you're some kind of pagan or some kind of heretic or something like that, you know, because it's... It's, it just seems the easiest, but but these categories are arbitrary just by default, it seems. I saw recently somebody use paganism as kind of uh, an identity-rejecting spirituality in a way that uh, uh, in the context of, of actually kind of more like a Marxist, uh, Marxist modern critical theory sort of religiosity. Really? I heard similar things with uh, heathen. You know, in Norway, we have Hedning as something, for instance. So we have kind of a tradition of using even as a non-believer, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, Hedning something in Norway is an, is an atheist organization. So, so the heathen society, literally. But I guess that that comes down from, uh, from a Hedning being kind of a derogatory term in, uh, in the Protestant uh, state of Norway. Back to what I was saying, though, like, uh, yeah, the the notion that uh, the notion, of course, of paganism as sort of an egalitarian thing, you know, that that uh, paganism is ultimately about experience of nature, which I don't think is necessarily true, as I've already, you know, <laughs> elaborated upon very thoroughly in uh, in in my debate with Matthias Nobig, for instance. But but yeah, I thought that that was an interesting take, just you know, to add to the flora of uh, of modern isms and interpretations of paganism itself i know another okay let me try again i've heard this kind of story before and the sense that people have been arguing over kabbalism forever of course is christian kabbalism really kabbalism is new age kabbalah really kabbalah at all and i guess that's also why i've been so I find it tiresome, this whole discussion of authenticity. It's annoying. It's always been people interpreting each other's fan fiction. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all, all turtles all the way down. I'm sorry. That's how it's always been. So stop looking for something authentic. It's always been people who have been interpreting things in new ways and writing it in new ways. And other people have been interpreting that in new ways and writing in new ways and so on and so on and so on. You're never going to find authenticity. Sorry. <laughs> no, it is true, and I completely agree. Uh, that is a curse. I think, actually, now that you mention it, I think that this is one of the first things that we talked about bringing you on the podcast for, actually, was the, to, to just rip apart the whole concept of authenticity, because authenticity is a very big subject, not only in, how should I say, uh, educating people about the past, but also living history and reenactment, um, all of that stuff. And in those contexts, authenticity is just kind of used as an approximation towards something as it could have been, in a way. But of course, when you're talking about subjective worldviews, things that are entirely unscientific in a way, um, at least in the kind of the 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 
realwissenschaft sort of uh, <laughs> paradigm, yeah, it, it becomes a whole different uh, yeah. bag. It's, diff it's different when you're talking about material culture. And I think, of course, then you have archaeological evidence and you have approximations that are more, uh, that can hit the mark better than others. Let's put it that way. And uh, I think you could think about uh, ideas and religion in similar ways, of course. There are some guesses that are better than others. I'm not a relativist. Don't, don't worry. Don't send me any anthrax in my mail or anything. It's, uh, it's just we have to. You don't have an original source to go back to. If you're looking at the Upanishads or you're looking at the Christian tradition, then you're looking at a lot of very different people who have very different ideas and very different interpretations, and you can't really escape that. And that's my big bugbear about authenticity, I guess. Yeah, speaking of authenticity, there's also, you know, uh, the, uh, the Indo-Europeanists kind of, uh, well, the Indo-European Indo method in itself tries to reconstruct what the Indo-European worldview was like, uh, you know, X amount of thousand years ago, uh, just based on comparative evidence from, you know, archaeology, uh, historical linguistics, uh, comparative religion and stuff like that. But then there's this subcultural aspect to it, going back to the enfant terrible of the, of the traditionalist school of thought, uh, that there is a primordial Indo-European tradition that we can reconstruct. Uh, and where anything that just looks similar in, in one part of the Indo-European world, uh, if it has any sort of parallel in, say, India or Iran or uh, anywhere else, then, you know, this must go back to that old, that old common source, that old time religion, how it's really supposed to be. I always had big problems with that, I think. I, there was probably a brief period of fascination with this subject, but... Again, getting back to the subject of authenticity, I think that I have real issues with this because it glosses over some of the cultural differences and local local developments that happened in the in the cultural contexts of all of these Indo-European so-called peoples. That's a very interesting point, I think. Um, as you know, I did my master's in religious studies, and um, most of us who have gone into religious studies, we have often been interested in religious syncretism. As you said, we're seeing similar things in different cultures across the globe, and we're seeing similar rituals and similar beliefs and so on. And we're thinking, oh, this might be that, this might be similar to this, and so on. And I'll be honest, that's what part of what has motivated me and what I find interesting about religion. So I don't I'm not judging people for that. I just think that within this tradition of uh, studying religion as a cultural phenomenon. We had a kind of a paradigm shift. Earlier on, you often had the phenomenologists of religion, like Mircea Eliade, for instance, who, whose books you really should read if you haven't read them. It's uh, very well done work. Of course. Mm. And you have... Yeah, well, who, who doesn't love Mircea Eliade? He's like, uh, he's like the secret crush. <laughs> it's like like yeah, of all religious scholars and and all of the when you study the history of religions 
uh, he's always kind of spoken ill about, but also, but always in a kind of flattering way. Yeah, that's a good point. It's like all of the scholars are kind of secretly in love with the things that he's saying because he writes so well. But you know, there are there are other reasons for criticizing Mircea Eliade, uh, yeah. specifically, you know, from a method methodological point of view. Absolutely, that the big problem was, of course, that he was uh, what people often derogatorily call an armchair historian that he never really went out to uh, Siberia, for instance, and talked to the locals there. No, he relied on what he could find in text and read it. And of, of course, uh, that has limitations and a lot of strengths too. So I recommend reading him. And um, another one in this tradition is uh, Fraser with the Golden Bow. And uh, syncretism is also very important in esotericism, as you well know. So even on uh, the reading list for the Ordo Templi Orientis and the AA, the organizations connected to Alistair Crowley and Telemic Magic, they actually put Fraser's Golden Bow on the reading list. So religious studies and syncretism and religious phenomenology and esotericism, interestingly enough, go kind of hand in hand as you're looking at the hidden truths behind religions, you know, that's quite similar. I always thought that that was kind of interesting. Uh, I actually wanted to do um, an episode dedicated to Crowley and Crowleyan texts. Uh, and just like the little nits, you know, bits and pieces that are there about uh, Norse literature and, uh, and Germanic literature and mythology. Uh, because there is not a lot there, but there are certain pieces. Like he was interested in comparative mythology, for instance. The, we see that in. We see that in, uh, in Liber Seven Seven Seven, for instance, when he's trying his big comparative work, and he's saying that, oh yeah, Odin is connected to this Sephira and the Tree of Life, and so on. That's fascinating, and a lot of the connections are strange. Like you're looking at this part, and then you're seeing Norse gods. Uh, incense, Egyptian god, and it's all supposed to correspond with each other. Uh, yeah, that's that would be an interesting discussion, an interesting investigation, I think. One of the things that I found kind of tantalizing there is that uh, Crowley separates Wotan and Odin into two different characters. And it took a while before I realized that uh, what he was actually talking about there is not necessarily like Wotan in German continental you know, continental Germanic mythology, but he's talking about the Wagnerian Wotan, of course. And uh, and Crowley was a big fan of, uh, he was a big fan of Wagner, and uh, he references Wagner sometimes, and he makes little references to Wotan and his spear in, in other works. Parsifal and the Fool have been very, very important for a lot of esotericists, so. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm. That's actually what I'm probably going to do in the future. I'm going to make a podcast episode dedicated to the fool as well uh, and i saw just today that one of my favorite podcasts uh, weird studies uh, actually released an episode about the fool themselves uh, <laughs> so uh, i don't know maybe i'll have to stall it a little bit because uh, it feels like it feels <laughs> like i'm just going to be be copying them uh, with, with my content you should start by talking about Jungian syncretism <laughs> as an excuse. <laughs> I was talking about the tradition of religious studies and how we were very syncretistic and we're very looking for the, these 
patterns and comparative mythology, if you can call it, and how there were similarities, and how these religious experiences look a lot like these other ones, and perhaps they have been clothed in different cultural language because of its context. But later on, one of the students of Eliade, was called uh, Jonathan said Smith, he died recently, but he's uh, a very interesting scholar. So he wrote his PhD dissertation just correcting mistakes in Fraser's Golden Bow. <laughs> it's, you know, the size of those balls, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, but, uh, so he was just looking through every reference and seeing where, okay, this is a translation error and so on. Okay, in the end, okay, the thesis doesn't really hold up when you're going into the minute details. People were looking too much at the big picture, so they were willing to forgive all of these little errors that made us forget important parts of the local context. So that's kind of what he has been introducing uh, to well, religious studies. Okay, stop being so enamored with big picture because you're going to overlook all of these important little details because you're looking for everything to fit your pattern. So just go into the specific case and get people who know Norse and, can, and know the context when you're trying to understand the context. Don't just go into it with the comparative mode in your head. So that's kind of an important paradigm shift in looking at religion, just apropos of what you were saying earlier. And that's the beauty, I think, uh, if I'm allowed to, to pat the back of my discipline a little bit, uh, the beauty of philology. Because philology is already such an, a discipline that is focused so much on the atomic scale. Uh, spelling mistakes in manuscripts, for instance, and, and reconstructing hypothetical, uh, the family trees of manuscripts that no longer exist, that sort of thing. And, uh, and so I think that when I started out in this field with uh, an interest in interdisciplinary work, I was taught the appreciation of the extremely kind of the, uh, excuse the term, autistically focused, you know, my, minute details, uh, ex extreme focus, laser focus on, on seemingly absurdly redundant, just minor, minor, minor details. Um, but I think that that is really the key, actually, to understand if you're going to have a big picture at all, you have to, you have to be aware of all of those little things, or at least the, the ones yeah, that you can know, at least. Yeah, I don't know. We need big pictures too, of course. I'm not a, an enemy of big pictures at all. I think they're very important and we don't have, we can never express the totality of a context in language. It's completely impossible. We just have white lies. And that's the only thing we really have to express anything with. Yeah. So it's always going to be uh, oversimplifications. So we need big stories that are simplifying things. But then we always have to keep in mind that they are lies, that they are oversimplifications, and then that they are made here and now. They're not authentic traditions that express what things were really like back then. Yeah. Well, of course, like just methodologically speaking, if you're going to build a skyscraper, you need more than an architect. You need people who make the rivets and pour the concrete as well. Yeah, that's a good metaphor. Perhaps we should have asked, for whom is this skyscraper being built? And for what purpose? Adrian and I decided to take a bathroom break and replenish our drinks at this point in the conversation 
but we never quite returned to where we were, and instead continued sharing anecdotes and banter in Norwegian, as often happens when old friends get together. Before we knew it, we were brainstorming about all the other subjects worthy of Scandi Futures speculation, and we both agreed that he should return to the podcast very soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. I have been your host, Erik Storesen, and this is where I make the customary sales pitch for the Brute Norse Patreon, and the bounties that await you in return for a monetary gesture of support. You can find the Brute Norse Teespring store and the Patreon, among any other links of Brute Norse relevance, collected in one link to direct you all in the show notes below.